0: Let's come before the Lord in prayer as we uh, open his word this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for the good news of the gospel that you pronounced to us all the way back to Genesis 3 when you pronounced a curse upon Satan for uh, tempting Adam and Eve and uh, in the curse that you laid upon Adam and Eve for their first sin, for their Original sin that brought the consequences of sin to all mankind. You pronounced and proclaimed, even then, the first gospel message that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. And in this season, in December, we, and especially Advent, we remember and look back to that time in real space and real time history when you sent the seed of that woman, who was really your only begotten Son, not made very God of very God who took on human flesh to crush the serpent's head and to save your people. As we open your word this morning, I pray that you'd prepare our hearts for worship and to receive your word in faith, that you'd lay our hearts low in repentance and raise our spirits high in joy for the advent of your son, Jesus Christ, as we look forward to his second advent, when he shall come again to wipe away every tear and defeat death once and for all. It is in his name we pray. Amen. My friends, why don't you turn in your Bibles to, I believe, page 1017 and 1018 in those pew Bibles, if you have your own. We're turning to Luke chapter 1, as we've been uh, going through expositionally uh, with Jonathan Allen and Pastor John, myself, and then next week with Jared, uh, through the gospel message, the Christmas story of the birth of Christ, beginning with the very beginning of Luke's gospel. And today we're going to be reading uh, starting with verse 57 through uh, the end of chapter 1, and I understand that it's quite a chunky passage, so uh, I'll try to make sure that I wrap all this together uh, in a very concise manner. But it is a weighty text, it's a lengthy text, and so we're going to read all these verses and I'll uh, exposit them for you shortly. So this is uh, verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth. Promise to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we being delivered from our from the hand of our enemies, might serve him with fear, or without fear, rather, without fear, and holiness and righteousness before him all our days, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the most high, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways This is the word of God. Thanks be to him. Let's begin by unfolding this good word of God. I thank you for this unspeakable privilege to preach the word of God. It is uh, hard to describe how uh, enjoyable this is uh, to stand before you as a, a servant with you before this God of ours and to unfold his word. And the unfolding of God's word gives light. And I pray that that would be uh, true uh, today, that I may faithfully unfold his holy and awesome word. Silence. 400 years of silence. God had not spoken to Israel through the mouth of his holy prophets for ages and ages. God brought them back from exile to Jerusalem, the uh, city of Jerusalem and the temple were rebuilt, the, and the prophecies of the Messiah were made, and at the end of the Old Testament canon of Scripture, Malachi's prophecy bookended the Scriptures and the Old Covenant with these words from the Lord. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of Children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And that's it. God closed the Old Testament Scriptures with this promise to send the greatest Old Testament prophet Elijah in anticipation of his own great visitation, his advent, one of either joyous deliverance or terrible destruction. And not a word more for God for Hundreds of years, for centuries. In that meantime, world powers had been raised up. They've come and they have gone. They've pressed their boots on the necks of God's people and they waited, God's people, with great expectations, but no Messiah had yet come. By the time the Romans were their overlords, expectations were left hanging limp and cold at their sides. Some still looked forward to the Messiah, many in vain, and maybe just ritualistically and traditionally. Many had lost hope and thought that God had actually forgotten his people and his promises altogether. But in the midst of those long, dark, and silent years, God unexpectedly broke into the silence and answered the prayers of the people to fulfill his promises Zechariah was a Levitical priest doing his duties in the temple. And he was offering the prayers on behalf of the people in the temple. And he was likely praying for their deliverance and for their redemption. And in that moment, as he's offering the incense before God in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, God sent the angel Gabriel to break that silence of 400 years. And the very first words that God spoke after all those long years since Malachi, he told Zechariah that his old and barren wife would have a son whose name would be John, not unlike the circumstances of Abraham and Sarah, so many thousand years before that. And what did Gabriel say that this child's task would be? See if you can make a connection to Malachi. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. God fulfilled his promise by the mouth of Malachi by designating John, John the Baptist, as the greatest and last Old Testament prophet. He would prepare Israel for the long-awaited visitation of the Lord. John was sent to prepare God's people for the first advent of the Messiah. And although this news was incredible, Zechariah was in utter disbelief. Although he was a righteous man, full of faith, at this moment when this promise was pronounced to him, he doubted the word of God spoken by the angel Gabriel, who served before the face of God. And rightly so, he was stricken with silence. I think a very ironic uh, punishment for disbelief. He was stricken with silence. Until the day these things would take place, which will be fulfilled in their time, so said Gabriel. And for nine long months of Elizabeth's pregnancy, Zechariah had plenty of time to sit in silent reflection on the words of Gabriel from the throne of God. Not able to say a thing and likely not able to hear a thing either, but sitting in silent contemplation of God's words. When the time came for John to be born, all the neighbors and relatives of Zechariah and Elizabeth rejoiced, including Mary, who was related to Elizabeth. They rejoiced because God had shown mercy to Elizabeth. The Lord had taken away her shame of childness, childlessness, and blessed her with a son. But when he was circumcised and the time came to name him, Elizabeth did not name him Zechariah or any other relative, as was the expectation and the tradition. Rather, she named him John, as the angel Gabriel said he should be. And so throughout the scriptures, something we need to understand is that giving names is actually an act of authority by the one who is giving that name over the names. And so that's why we name our children ourselves. We don't let them pick their own names. We name our children. And so it's remarkable then that when the people asked Zechariah what he wanted the name of the child to be, he wrote on the t- tablet, his name is John. Not, I want it to be John, or I think it should be John, or any other name for that matter. He didn't name his own son. He didn't have authority over John the Baptist, as we later know him. But he acknowledged that God was faithful to his word and had laid claim to John for a special role in redemptive history. When Zechariah indicated John's name after the Lord's authority, God showed Zechariah mercy and opened his mouth once again. And the first thing out of Zechariah's mouth was blessing God for the advent of his salvation and for preparing his people for that advent. This filled the people with fear and amazement, which they laid up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And so, singing over his son, all the things that he likely contemplated over those long nine months, and even his entire life, remembering and being a master of the Old Testament uh, scriptures, as a Levitical priest, he sang over his son, this Zechariah, filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied over him. And it's not about John, necessarily. He's not the central focus of this passage. Three guesses who is. As Zechariah burst forth in song by the Holy Spirit, his words were drenched. If you look at the text, it's drenched with Old Testament language. As he recognized their time of fulfillment had come, he knew that What God had promised through his prophets from of old was coming to pass. And it began with the birth of John, breaking forth into the silence of that promised coming forerunner of the Messiah. Zechariah blessed the Lord God of Israel for having visited and redeemed his people. The very creator of the universe had promised to visit Israel most strikingly through the words of Isaiah when. Ahaz, in the Old Testament, refused, this wicked king of Israel, refused to ask for a sign from the Lord. And in this particular promise of Isaiah, the prophet, God promised that a virgin would miraculously conceive a son and would call his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. And it is the promise of the advent or the appearance of God in the flesh. That's what we're celebrating this month. As we look forward to next week in the celebration of Christmas. This Advent is not realized in John's birth. It's not realized in John's birth. And Zechariah knew this fully well. Since Gabriel said that John would go in the spirit and power of Elijah before the Messiah. Before the Messiah. This song of Zechariah is all about God's salvation through the Messiah. This song reflects that, and it's not until later in this song that Zechariah talks about the role that John is going to play in preparing for the arrival of this Messiah. John only plays a supporting role. He's not the leading actor here. He plays a supporting role in the preparation for the arrival of Christ. And Jesus Christ is that word, become flesh who dwelt among us. Zechariah didn't know the full details of this fulfillment of the promises, but he knew full well that these things would happen in immediate, real-time, space, history. In his own lifetime, these things would come to pass. God himself has visited his people personally to redeem them. And it is this very redemption that God has promised, which Zechariah is looking forward to in the immediate future. Hosea, among the other prophets, prophesied God's promised redemption from far worse than just mere Empires and earthly enemies. He said this, I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. Oh, death, where are your plagues? Oh, Sheol, where is your sting? Does that sound familiar to you? I hope so. Paul interprets the death and resurrection of Jesus in light of the prophet Hosea as the ransom of God's people to purchase us from our debt to sin and eternal death as its consequence with the blood of his own precious son incarnate. And some thousand years before the advent of the Messiah, God made a holy covenant with David. You see all these promises being fulfilled here. In his promise to David, God promised, among many other things, to destroy the enemies of Israel and to raise up his son after him. And of this son, God said, I will establish his throne forever. And so throughout history, the history of Israel, God preserved a king in Judah from the house and lineage of David. But they rebelled and disobeyed the Lord. Even the kings did. And they were carried off into exile and the throne fell into despair and disrepair. And for those long ages between the time Israel returned from their exile until the appearing of the Messiah, the booth of David, lay in dust and shambles. No king sat upon that throne, although that house was not destroyed altogether. It was a vacant throne. But God promised through the prophet of Amos that in the day of the Lord, his great visitation, his advent, he would raise up the booth of David That is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. Some Jews still anticipated this return of the Davidic king and the conquering of their earthly enemies. Yet I say again, many have given up at that point in time with Zechariah, thinking that God had forgotten them and his promises to David. But not so Zechariah. He knew, and he recognized, that in the house of David, the Lord God of Israel was keeping his promises at long last. He knew that the Davidic covenant was a messianic messianic promise soon to be fulfilled. His own son, he knew, was not the Messiah, since he was from the house of Levi. But the Messiah would be a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. And it, isn't it remarkable that in the very next chapter of Luke's gospel, he makes an especial note that Joseph was of the house and lineage of David? Jesus was legally the son of Joseph. Though he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, he was born as David's greater offspring to sit upon his throne forever. And as David's house is rebuilt through the birth of Jesus, the salvation he brings is one of great strength. And power. The term horn in its usage in the Bible, as we see here in this text in verse 69, is often unfamiliar to us, but it symbolically refers to the horns of bulls and oxen who have great strength and power themselves. They're characterized with this strength. So it's a symbolic reference to the power of God's salvation. So, with the coming of the Messiah from the house and line of David, God is keeping his promises that all the enemies of Israel would be defeated. His salvation would be powerful and unlike anything the world had ever seen before. God would restore the booth of David far beyond its former glory. And with the advent of our salvation in Christ, there is no enemy who can ever snatch it away. And singing of God's salvation, Zechariah praises God that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. But from what enemies are we being saved? If you asked a first century Jew, they likely would have said, from Caesar Augustus. Ask them a few hundred years before that, Antiochus Epiphanes, then the Greeks. Ask them a few centuries before that, the Persians or the Babylonians or the Egyptians. But this isn't the redemption that God had promised, necessarily. In the 400 years that they have returned from exile, they were regularly dominated by foreign superpowers, but even as they waited with bated teeth of the Lord to deliver them from their earthly enemies, God had a different salvation in mind. A far greater and more terrible enemy that his people would be delivered from. Their and our deliverance is from an unexpected enemy. God's promised salvation is from the enemy of sin and death. And apart from Christ, we are enslaved to sin and our sinful desires. And by which we are guilty before the holy God. And because of our guilt before God and sin, we are also his enemies. When we are living in sin... When we make a practice of unrepentant sin, we live in rebellion against his holy throne. So, if God saves us from our enemies, then from what are we saved? Ultimately, we're saved from the just punishment that we deserve for our rebellion. God delivers us from the hand of sin and death. If it would have been easy for Israel to think God had forgotten his covenant with David, then it would have been easy to think that God had forgotten his covenant with Abraham as well. So many thousand years even before David. And would God still bless all the nations through his offspring and make his offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky? Zechariah sees the coming Messiah as God's remembrance of this holy covenant, the oath that he swore to Abraham, the father of many nations. Do you remember how God sealed his promise to Abraham? In Genesis 15, when he made these promises to him, he told Abraham to gather some animals together, cut them in half, lay the severed pieces in an aisle with all the blood and guts in between. And in the middle of the night, a torch and a smoking furnace passed between those pieces, which Abraham witnessed. And he witnessed none other than a th- uh, a theophany, a manifestation of the holy glory of God Almighty visiting him to make a holy promise and oath before him. And what does that particular symbolic covenant mean? As God passed between these pieces, he and he alone passed between these pieces, he said to Abraham, May I be as these animals slaughtered and severed are if I don't keep my promise to you, Abraham. Severed and destroyed, no longer God. God is not a man that he should lie, that he should forget his promises or fail to keep them. He is Almighty God. He is forever faithful to his promises, even when we think he's not. And as certainly as God kept his covenant with Abraham by bringing out his descendants from Egypt into the promised land of Canaan, that was just a foretaste of what God would do, just a small taste. God had kept his promise in Christ, who brings even Gentiles into the promised land of glory, as they and we receive mercy and are saved by faith alone. All the nations are blessed through Christ, in that even we Gentiles are enjoined to the holy root of Israel, Jesus Christ, as unnatural branches. We are blessed to receive the promises of God when he shows us mercy and graciously gives us the gift of faith in his Son. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, Heirs according to the promise. It is God's good and merciful plan from before the foundations of the world that he has chosen a people, Jews and Gentile alike, who would have life by the promised seed of the woman who crushed the serpent's head on the cross. We, too, are brought out of the house of slavery, as were the ancient Israelites, though not from Egypt, but from slavery to sin. And in the initial fulfillment of his covenant, God brought Israel out of Egypt, not for their own sakes, but to serve him in response to their deliverance. That's what he had Moses tell Pharaoh over and over and over again. Let my people go that they may serve me. And that's why in the old covenant context of the moral law and the Ten Commandments that we have, what leads that off is not do this and live, but it is I have delivered you from slavery. I am your God. Now obey me. It is a response in gratitude for salvation from our enemies. And we too get to enjoy that particular context in the New Testament pattern for us. Delivered from the house of slavery to sin, we are to respond by serving him without fear and holiness. And righteousness before him all our days. The new covenant context is our obedience to God's moral law is framed by Jesus' act of deliverance on our behalf. So we can serve him freely forever and joy and gladness. Now, concerning this first advent of the Messiah, Zechariah then turns his attention to his son John. As the angel Gabriel foretold, this son would be the forerunner of the Messiah. God said through Malachi that he would send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And Zechariah prophesied that John would be called the prophet of the Most High, meaning that he would speak on behalf of the Lord God Most High as the last and greatest Old Testament prophet, pointing towards the immediacy of the coming Messiah. Gabriel told Mary that this son of hers would be called the Son of the Most High. So then, John is going to speak on behalf of Jesus Christ to prepare Israel for the work of redemption. He would go before the Lord to prepare his ways. The way that John would prepare Israel would be to announce the good news before Jesus made his public ministry. He would give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. And in order to prepare for the good news of the gospel, that there is forgiveness in Christ, it's necessary to recognize one's guilt before God. Not only must we recognize our guilt, but we must repent sincerely in our hearts. John called Israel to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Our confession of sins must never be a half-hearted or glib, but sincere, and full of holy contrition. In view of the coming Messiah, Isaiah prophesied, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. If you were to prepare the way for the King, as we sing, in joy to the world, it is to lay our hearts low in repentance. Repentance and faith. These words are often... Connected to John the Baptist in Scripture, revealing that the way to prepare room in our hearts for Christ is by faith in conjunction with true repentance. They go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. If you have real faith, you have real repentance. And if you have real repentance, it is because you have real faith in the Messiah. And that leads to forgiveness of sins, as God promised. Do you believe that God forgives your sins when you repent and turn to Christ? You have to believe his word. Take him at his word. God is faithful to forgive us all our sins when we confess them before him. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not by water, but by the very precious blood of Christ. So I charge all of us here today, as we think about that, to come before the Lord daily in repentance. In sincere, humble repentance before the Lord God Almighty. And though John, or through John, God revealed Jesus Christ as the Messiah who saves his people. John said of Jesus in John 1, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's where you find your forgiveness in the revealing of Jesus as the Lamb of God. There is no salvation apart from this Lamb. None. There are not many ways to heaven. There is one way. Through the precious blood of the Lamb who was slain and yet lives. No salvation apart from him. He was born as an unblemished lamb to pay for human sin upon that cross, paying the insurmountable debt that we owe to God. We could never pay it back, but Christ paid it for us. He also lived that perfect human life, obedient to all God's commandments so that we might be counted as righteous by faith in him alone. Not in our own works, or our own abilities, but by in Christ's And his obedience. And all the salvation and forgiveness of sins in Christ is sheerly because of the tender mercy, the tender mercy of our God. This is the reason that motivated the second person of the Trinity to visit us from on high. It's his mercy. He didn't save us because the Godhead was lonely without us, he didn't need us somehow in heaven, and he was empty without us. Incomplete without us? No, not a chance. You can keep your Hillsong hits. I'll sing, I know not why God's wondrous grace to me is daily shown, nor why with mercy Christ in love redeemed me for his own. But I know whom I have believed. He is faithful and he is merciful. And that's it. We don't deserve it. We don't earn it. We don't buy it. Christ bought us. And so, through the tender mercy of God, the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. This light appearing in the darkness is yet again long promised throughout the Old Testament. You can see the words of Zechariah just teeming with the Old Testament, teeming with God's promises through the prophets of old. If you don't read your Old Testament, I don't know how you understand the New Testament. And if you don't read your New Testament, I don't know how you understand your Old Testament. In the Old Testament, Christ is concealed. And in the New Testament, the Old Testament tells us the revelation of Christ. You need to know both. You need to be steeped in both. And in the same prophecy that Isaiah made of the Messiah, that he would be called the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. In this same prophecy, he promised and prophesied that a light would come. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. Zechariah knew this light was coming. And his son would, son would bear witness about the light that all might believe through him, not John, through Christ, the light. The light of life that John bore witness about is for those who sit in darkness of sin and in the shadow of death, where we are powerless and frail creatures. This past Friday, uh, I attended a wake of a great lady in my life. We're relatively related by family marriages, and in her own life, she had previously lost two of her own sons. And her husband years before that. Her remaining son told me that night when I visited with them how hard it was for him to be the last one left of his nuclear family. And it just, oh, that hit me in the heart. And as sad as I was at the passing of this dear saint, I also bumped into a gentleman I knew growing up at Bethel in Lansing. And for as long as I have known him, he's battled brain tumors and uh, they've taken their toll over the years. I hadn't seen him or his wife in, in several years, and I still recognize him immediately, but over the last few years, he's become emaciated in his face and in his body, and he needs a cane to walk, and when I went to shake his hand, he actually had to shift his cane and uh, lean on it so that he can shake my hand with his left hand. Because his right hand hung limply by his side, because of the effects of this, these tumors that have plagued him for so long, and his speech even became slurred and undecipherable. Wakes and funerals are always sobering moments, are they not? They wake us up to the reality of the human condition. We often think we're invincible, and then someone we love dies, and we visit either at a wake or their funeral, and that pride is Humbled to the dust, but this this encounter that I had with this man that I had known, on top of the wake, it just wrenched my heart. On the drive home, I couldn't contain myself. I wept in pain and uh, just thinking about all the pain and suffering that so many of us endure in this world. Our bodies fall apart. We become susceptible to diseases of all kinds. Cancer eats away our strength. Our loved ones decay in body and mind. And the toll is taxing on us who care for them. And so many of you here in this congregation have suffered so much in the last few years or in the decades preceding. You've lost siblings, you've lost spouses and children. You have your own history of health battles and spiritual battles. You have petitioned in tears for the friends and family of yours who are living in unrepentant sin. Sometimes thinking they're at ease in Zion. When the day of the Lord comes, it will be a day of ruin for them if they do not turn and repent, as John warned us. None of us here have made it through life unscathed by the shadow of death. We are under the looming curse of death as a consequence for Adam's sin. It's unavoidable, it's inescapable unless Christ returns before we die. And what a great privilege that would be. But for most of us, death is the last enemy to be defeated. But in him, that is Christ Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Through the darkness of sin and the shadow of death is a strong horn of salvation that is stronger Than that shadow. There is light, and there can be no darkness dwelling in the presence of that light, including sin and death. And although not all the effects of sin are done away with when we possess faith in Christ, we have been set free as captives to sin. Malachi prophesied in the conclusion of the Old Testament, before John's birth He said, You who fear my name, for you, the Son of righteousness, shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. The dark sting, namely our guilt and sin, is dispelled by the brilliant advent of the Messiah. Tonight, I want you to think of the sunrise that has visited us from on high when we hold our candlelight service. There we'll see shadows looming on the fringes, but our attention will be drawn to the beauty and serenity of those warm lights like we have here. We recognize that we are in the shadow of death, but think of the light of life in Christ who shines in our hearts with an unwavering and inextinguishable light of hope in a resurrection like his. This is the Christmas message. And John prepared a way for that. The very light of Christ will guide our feet into the way of peace. So let us follow the Prince of Peace, whom we love and proclaim. When we lean on him, his peace guards our hearts and minds, surpassing all understanding, so that we may smile through the tears we shed in this weary world. Bless the name of the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has done great things, and that is the source of all our peace. Let me say this in conclusion. Can you see why Zechariah, Elizabeth, and their friends and family were so full of joy and amazement at the birth of John? And as Zechariah prophesied as the first thing out of his mouth, all these great awesome things in this song that we've just heard, God was silent no more. And the morning star began to shimmer from afar. God had remembered his promises. He has not forgotten his people. The advent of the Lord's Messiah has come. Now the King Jesus sits upon his throne. Even today, our enemies of death and sin have been subdued under his mighty feet. We Gentiles have been brought in to partake of the promises of God to Abraham, and we have been saved to serve God in holiness and righteousness forever. John came to bear witness to the light of life and to show us how we are to come before this king in repentance and faith. In this way, he forgives us out of sheer mercy. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light of life to all he brings. Risen with healing in his wings. Let's pray. Blessed are you, O Lord God Almighty, for you have visited and redeemed your people by your mighty strong hand to deliver us from sin and death and to shine light into our dark lives. May we lay ourselves in the dust in repentance and be raised by your Spirit to rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ who came to deliver us from all our enemies. We praise you and thank you. May we live lives of humble and joyous service before you. Amen.